All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for gathering us together as family in the unity of the faith. Thank you for making days like this a reality. They're special, each one of them, Father. It's just good to be alive. Life is so good by means of your grace, Father. We know there are challenges. We know there are trials and tribulations, but these are the things that you've taught us over the years, bring glory to you as we persevere on through them, as we shine as lights to the world. To that same world, Father, that you set us out as sheep to go evangelize on this great commission we've been given. Father, thank you for the clarity you've given us on the gospel of your Son. Thank you for making it simple. Thank you for cleaning out the cobwebs, for cleaning out all the white noise, for making it so that while it's challenging, is absolute, just, and righteous. Father, thank you for every divine appointment you've given us that you've ordained from eternity past so that we might gain new souls on our own hearts, that we might win souls forevermore in the name of your Son so that we might rejoice together in the faith with new brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, on that note, we pray for those still lost that you humble them, whatever it takes, as difficult as it may be, Some may need to hit rock bottom, Father, so be it. Thank you for keeping them alive long enough by means of your patience so that they might be converted. We are most grateful and thankful for your son's work on the cross to make all of this a reality, even today. We just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, long series we've been on, uh, part 31 of Why are the Apostles so encouraging? By grace, they were prepared. Uh, I want to open up with a principle. We've got uh, another sort of split lesson. Uh, The Spirit's had an awful lot to say about the gospel as of late. He just sort of weaves it into our lessons, if you note, or if you notice. Um, So I want to open up with a principle from Thursday's message regarding the gospel, conversion, and evangelism, because they're all related topics. Um, And I think sometimes even we can forget this, that God is immutable. You see this right here? It just is. Before Abraham was, he was. He always has been. He's the Alpha, the Omega. He is the very Word of God. So Christ's mind is the same yesterday, today, and forever which means whatever we find in the Word is consistent across every every era of humanity. It's not changed because we have this idea that it should change because it's, you know, 2017 and times have changed. That's garbage. God is immutable, which means that if it's clearly stated in the Word of God, it is, and it has always been, and it has predated human history even. That's the Word. We have no right to mess around with it uh, because it might accommodate someone we care about or someone we don't care about, or even ourselves. So a person will never concede God's sovereignty if they are their own God. I see that a lot when you go out and try to talk to someone about Jesus Christ. The problem is 
They don't want to do what Christ said. Christ said, you've got to deny yourself to follow me. It's that simple. But I don't want to. Well, then you're your own God. Obviously, you're serving yourself, uh, which makes you your own God. You may have not have thought of yourself that way in the past, but that's exactly what you're proposing. And that's why a lot of people reject the gospel. So a person will never concede God's sovereignty if they are their own God. And God, here's the thing, God is not interested in fitting into the confines of man's preferences for himself because he's immutable. God is not interested in fitting into the confines of man's preferences for himself. Um, if you're honest, I think, if we're all honest, we can all say that we have certain preferences. We kind of wish that God maybe did something a little different. Maybe it was a little easier. Maybe it was a little, you know, this better, quote unquote, this way or that way. But that doesn't matter. Our own preconceptions about God doesn't matter. They don't matter. Uh, our preferences about him don't matter. God is immutable. But rather than just pointing fingers at unbelievers, because we love to do that, don't we? Let me ask you a question. What gets you up in the morning? I mean, why are you here? Because it's a routine? I mean, it's better than not coming, if you're honest. But what gets you up in the morning? I mean, what jazzes you up each day? Is it the bright sun? Is it the smell of coffee? Or the prospect of spending time with loved ones? I mean, there's nothing necessarily wrong with those things. Is there anything missing in your list? Hint the initials JC. Is there anything missing in your list that gets you up in the morning? Jesus stated very clearly why he came to earth. Go to Luke 19.10. Luke 19.10. So what gets you up in the morning? Some people are like, you know, well, I got this nice new job or, you know, I just picked up this you know, new motorcycle on eBay, and I'm all, you know, about rearing down the road, and, you know, I just found out this new mate latte cappuccino at Starbucks, and it's just amazing, and they open up at 6, so I'm there bright and early, and I just bounce out of bed, can't wait for that shot of caffeine, the double espresso, thank you, ma'am. What is it? Or is it this? What do you think of Jesus up out of the morning in the morning? Luke nineteen ten. For the Son of Man has come to what? Say it. Wow, Brian, you're the only one with a voice. Maybe you should sing it and they'll follow you. Seek and to say. For the Son of Man has come to what? And Wow. That was tough. That which was lost. Well, that's hey, experiment number one. Don't have him read out loud. <laughs> For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Pretty succinct, right? Yeah. Jesus also, or is also the one who spoke the following. Go to John 3.16. John 3.16. So he said, I came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus said this in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. In other words, that was Jesus' mission. And guess who was behind that? God. God so loved the world, God sent his Son. We might say God the Father there. Okay, so, so far we have the Son saying, this is what I came to do. You have the Father implementing the plan for him to do that very thing. Jesus also stated, go to John 16, 13. John 16, 13. John 16, 13. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. So who do you think was speaking through Paul when he wrote the following? Go to 1 Timothy 1.15. 1 Timothy 1.15. <clears throat> 1 So we have Jesus saying that I'm going to give you this helper, and he's going to bring into remembrance. He's going to fill your mouth, so don't worry about it. 1 Timothy 1.15, it is a trustworthy statement. So Paul's writing this, of course, the apostle. It is a trustworthy statement. In other words, the Spirit is the author here. It is a trustworthy statement. Why? Because God the Holy Spirit, the one whom Jesus said he would send, is the author. He's the author of the Bible, after all. Deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that was Jesus' mission. Among whom I am foremost of all. So in other words, Paul, being filled with the Spirit, made this statement. Deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to what? Save sinners. So if you've been paying attention, you probably already know what was just established. If not, let me help you up here on the board. Remember, I've taught you this not so long ago, that God is unity. That there's no separation of thought or anything, uh, or doctrines or anything goofy like that, between the Godhead. We just saw that in Scripture, that all three said the same thing, that Jesus' mission was to seek and to save. That was the reason he became man, even. Think about that. All three persons of the Godhead testify that Jesus' mission on earth was consistent with his own words. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Luke 19.10 So last Sunday, we ended with this. We're in a battle for the souls of men. That was something Scott Grandi had said the week before. Doesn't that make sense then? I mean, aren't we his sheep? Aren't we commissioned to go out in his good name and save souls? If that was his mission and he handed over the reins to us, isn't, don't you think it would be consistent for us to have the same attitude about getting up in the morning 
about living our lives? Are we to live for ourselves or for that purpose? That's the point. Because we just saw the whole Godhead, which was involved in the entire plan of mankind, saying this is why Jesus came, and this was his mission. And oh, by the way, you're his. You've been redeemed. He's your master. You're his slave. Slaves are supposed to what? Obey their master. So this has been a recurring theme all week. On Thursday, we read a familiar passage about the conversion of a chief tax collector named Zacchaeus, which is the context immediately preceding Christ's statement regarding his purpose on earth. Let's review that passage quickly. Go to Luke 19.1. Luke 19.1. So it's true. We're in a battle for the souls of men. Luke 19.1. I would think that um, if, if this was a literal battle, a fleshly battle, I mean, we'd be up to our kneecaps and in blood and gore and guts and everything else because this is a this is incredible this war that we're in uh, spiritual warfare is pervasive in life Luke 19:1 he entered Jericho and was passing through and there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus he was a chief tax collector and he was rich remember that would have made him not the most popular individual uh, he was dubbed sinner, you know, one of them. Uh, you know, one of the, even though he had money, a, sort of a dreg of society, uh, not the most highly esteemed position at all. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was ina- unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. That's what I was just talking about. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, And if I have defrauded anyone anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So now you have the whole context. You have the conversion of Zacchaeus ending with the context of Jesus' own ministry, the purpose, the reason why he came. So for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. I also shared another pastor's perspective on this passage, uh, an individual that I respect uh, very much so, J. Vernon McGee, on the whole of Luke 19, 1 to 10. By his fruit, I know he has been converted. Now, people just, for whatever reason, don't like to accept this. And that's between, I'm tired of talking about it, but people just seem not to like to accept this thing. I shouldn't say I'm tired, you know what I mean, I'm being facetious. But By his fruit, I know he has been converted, and he's talking about Zacchaeus. And this is McGee talking about a man who was converted and then bore fruit. And friend, this is the only way the world will know that you are converted. 
They do not know it by testimony. A lot of people do this, right? Oh, are you a Christian? I'm totally a Christian. Really? Really? It doesn't seem like anything's changed in your life. It doesn't seem like you even have a one iota of love for the Lord. Seems you live for yourself. Seems like you nothing's changed in your life. But you see, I have this ticket in my back pocket, you see. And it says, admit one to heaven. You see this ticket right here? Some idiot gave it to me. Seriously, and lied to me, lied to my face, and said, just say this little prayer, believe these facts about this guy named Jesus, and you won't go to this fiery place called hell, because who wants to go there? You'll get a free ticket to heaven. And oh, by the way, don't even worry about the old self. Don't even think about your depravity. You can worry about that later, maybe. You can just, you know, trundle along or uh, walk along as a so-called carnal Christian and never be converted, actually, never be changed, never be expected to be changed, making this complete garbage, by the way, along the way. But who cares? Just put that over there, let it keep collecting dust, okay? And just keep that ticket in your back pocket. So if anybody asks, if, you know, Grandma, who's close to the grave, ever asks, and she's starting to get upset, oh, oh, Sonny, are you saved? Oh, yes, always, look at it. Right there, admit one. I'm saved. They do not know by testimony. They know it only by what they see in your life. If it were not for his changed life, I would never know that this old publican got converted. Zacchaeus, uh, excuse me, the experience of Zacchaeus is a good illustration of what James says. Ye, and this is the King James Version, that's why it reads funny. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Shew me thy faith without thy works, and I will shew thee my faith by my works. Zacchaeus showed his faith by his works. He did not talk about his faith. He demonstrated it. He demonstrated it. Again, this is the same guy who quip, you know, made that little quip, I, your actions speak so loud I don't hear a word you're saying. Same guy, that's McGee. The world is not listening for something today. It is looking for something. You know, there's, there's a lot of microphones out there, right? One of them's called YouTube, Facebook, all these social media, you know, everybody's talking about something. But it seems like everybody's a bunch of phonies. Everybody's talking about something. Oh, you know, I'm, you know, I'm this, I'm that. I, I'm also a Christian. Really? Really? Would have never known. Zacchaeus had what the world is looking for. Jesus had dinner with him and his life changed. So I was reflecting on all of this. I don't want to get too hung up on that particular issue. It's just something I wanted to share with you uh, because people are goofy about that thing. I don't know what the deal is. It makes total sense to me. If you're changed, if something that magnanimous has happened in your life, like you've been born again, been made new, something's changing. And if something doesn't change, you have to actually question the so-called faith of the individual in view. But here's, a, here's something to think about. As evangelists, on the other side of the fence, why do some evangelists stumble? One of the primary reasons people reject the gospel is that they respect man's self-esteem over God's. In other words, it's sort of collective thinking, and 
I hate to say it, even contemporary Christianity, which to me is an abomination, that we're to respect man's self-esteem, that somehow, you know, keeping their fragile glass-like self-esteem intact is way more important than actually challenging them with the truth about the sovereign God of the universe, who actually is wrathful against sin, who hates sin and evil. And here's a good thing to think about. I was thinking about this about a month ago or so. You know, we have this old saying, and I'm, I think I might just stop saying it because it's misleading. That old saying, you know, um, hate the sin, not the sinner. You know that old saying? There's truth in it, but think about this as well. This is why I might stop saying it. Cause it does God throw sin into hell or the sinner? Oh, really? Think about that. He doesn't throw sin into hell. He throws a sinner into hell. So just think about that the next time you use that quip, and I'm just as guilty. Oh, you know, hate the sin, not the sinner. But God throws a sinner into hell, not the sin. Hmm. So I guess there's a certain hatred, even, if you would, involved. You think about that. So one of the primary reasons people reject the gospel is that they respect man's self-esteem over God's. As a result, they'd rather insult God's sovereignty rather than the sovereignty currently ruling the unbeliever's heart. In other words, they'd rather insult God's sovereignty than the unbeliever's sensibilities. It's unbelievable. What are we doing? By the way, this is what we're teaching our children in grade school. It's an, that's a, I digress, but this is the kind of attitude. You know, everybody gets a trophy. Oh, play this sport, and everybody gets a trophy. What? How the heck does that work? That's the same attitude, because we don't want any kid to feel bad. We don't want any kid to be, you know, their sensibilities to be wounded, their pride. What are we, what are we pandering to, by the way, when we give every kid a trophy? Pride. I didn't get one. <laughs> I didn't get one. But look at them, they're so pathetic. Yeah, they're prideful, arrogant, little, fleshly little animals. And they're crying, yes, and they're appealing, and all the ladies are like, just give them a trophy. Oh, it's tearing me up inside. And so we pander. We pander to the pride of young people, little kids. And it's the same thing. It's the same thing. God, if God's not going to pander to those he's created, then we shouldn't pander to them. If you're going to offend somebody with the truth about the sovereign God of the universe, that's not your problem. Do you understand? If they hate you for it, it's still not your problem. Now your own flesh has got involved. Well, then I'm not going to be liked, and I won't get my promotion, or I won't get my new boyfriend or my new girlfriend. <laughs> Who are you living for? It's unbelievable. So chew on that, please. And think about that the next time you're going to evangelize someone. You know, share in Christ's ultimate purpose for even coming to earth. I mean, whose purpose is this anyways? Is it your gospel or his? I was reading the book titled The Gospel According to Paul by John MacArthur yesterday morning. That's his third in the series, by the way. He didn't just write that first one. 
He wrote uh, the gospel according to Jesus Christ and the gospel according to the apostles and then the gospel according to Paul. It's the third in the series, a tremendous series, by the way. But anyways, I thought I'd share this quote with you on this topic on soteriology, which is really the doctrine of salvation. Every lesson we can legitimately learn from biblical soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, points to the glory of God, not the self-esteem of the sinner. Again, every lesson we can legitimately learn from biblical soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation, points to the glory of God, not the self-esteem of the sinner. And if you roll back the onion or peel back the onion with uh, any religion, I'm convinced of this, this is what's being attacked. They use fancy words like faith and, you know, they've muddied grace into some weak, I don't even know what the heck to call it, something that's not actually grace, some perversion of grace, all for this thing, to preserve the self-esteem of the sinner. Don't offend them. We might lose them in the church. So you'd rather have a bunch of unbelievers filling seats and throwing money in a bucket? Is that what this comes down to? Because we don't want to offend them and they might scatter? Good. Let them scatter. Seriously. Let them scatter. Maybe when they scatter, they have to hit rock bottom out there and figure out that there's no life out there. It's death. Let them hit rock bottom. You got, okay, parents, you ready? Let them hit rock bottom. Let it happen. If that's what it has to be, if that's how it goes, let them hit rock bottom. You are not the Savior. But don't you dare compromise the truth in the Bible to accommodate them in their flesh. In other words, if you are willing to accept what is clearly stated as truth in the Bible, then you must accept the statement on the board. That is to say that salvation isn't meant to accommodate the sensibilities of man. Rather, it is meant to accommodate the sovereign God of the universe. I think people have a problem with that, basically. They want him to accommodate them. Who, the God of the universe, as we've noted recently, intends to glorify himself, not fallen creatures. In fact, to be specific, he never glorifies fallen creatures. Instead, he makes those who believe in his son new creatures. But he doesn't glorify fallen creatures. He's not interested in pandering to their self-esteem. Because they're prideful, fleshly asses. Selfish, self-centered, egocentric. Some of you are like, yeah, that sounds like my kid. It is. That's why you can't evangelize them. Because they're not interested in God. They know He exists, so says the Bible, but they're actually not interested in Him. Romans 8.30 and these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. To that degree, to that degree, we are glorified. And even that points to the future. 
God's not intending on glorifying creatures, especially fallen ones or unbelievers, if you want to call it that. So one of the recurring themes in our lessons over the past couple of years now is that we mustn't supplant sound doctrine with man-made doctrine. Because man-made doctrine always has an accommodating thread to it. That's the point. And we must avoid the temptation to wane on the gospel proper. Not wishing for any to perish. Right? Who, who wants anyone, even your worst nightmare? You don't want your worst, I mean your worst nightmare, your worst enemy to go to hell. Is that fair? You really don't. Some of you are like, well, you really don't. Not when you understand the finality of it. It's not a hundred-year sentence. It's forever. Just thinking about that makes me queasy. I don't care who I'm thinking about. So we've got to avoid the temptation to wane on the gospel proper. Not wishing any to perish, for any to perish, that's consistent with God. But, you know what else is consistent with God? But also not wishing to ever compromise truth. And those things have to reconcile the way God does. Hence a principle from Thursday's message, check your motivation, evangelists. I'm not talking about just ordained ones, I'm talking about all of you. We're all evangelists. Check your motivation. The human emotion, you know, that all be saved is often different than God's in the sense that it is absent of divine viewpoint on justice. It's almost like we just like to gather everybody up. You know, we'll deal with that later. You know, once they see God in heaven, they'll just change their mind. Lie. Let's just gather, like Mother Hen, you know, that's, it's like, that's why it's often equated to like a feminine type thing. You know, oh, you know. Let's gather them all up. They're just confused and, you know, they're lost and this kind of a thing. Let's just gather them up. And once they see God, it will be, you know, it's all going to be good. There are religions that teach that. God's just so loving, he's never going to send anybody to hell. What? Where's that in the Bible? But it accommodates, doesn't it? It accommodates your sensibilities that a loving God could never send one of his own creation to hell. And nonetheless, he knew beforehand well, you're not reading your Bible then. Or if you are, you're rejecting the whole of it. It's not how God works. The human emotion that all be saved is often different than God's in the sense that it is absent of divine viewpoint on justice. God's grace is not accommodating to man's sensibilities. Rather, it is accommodating to God's sovereignty. So, here's what the, the point the Spirit's making here this morning. You know what? Go out and evangelize without apology. Seriously. If someone gets offended by what you're saying about your Lord and Savior, if he even is your Lord and Savior, assuming he is, then what's the problem? Why would you ever apologize? Well, they won't want to talk to me anymore. Well, I'll lose my friendship. Or I'll lose my, you know, whatever. Well, what does that say about the person you're dealing with? What kind of friend or love do they have for you in the first place? Sounds very conditional in the first place. Not that we'd expect any less out of an unbeliever. But go out there and evangelize without apology. I think if I was to um, summarize the last two years with just bullets, this would be one of them. Go out there and evangelize without apology. Stop succumbing to the temptation to pander to prideful flesh that does not want to give up the self-life, that doesn't even want to consider it. 
I want you to concentrate now, and I really need you to put your thinking caps on for a moment, because I'm going to be speaking theologically now, so that we can investigate this point on the board a little more. That is the fundamental reason why many people in this world reject the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Have you ever wondered that? Like, what is the deal? Why do they reject it? It seems so perfect. Why would anybody reject the true gospel of Jesus Christ? What is it, you might ask? Well, it's the fancy word that Paul uses in Holy Scripture to describe God's satisfaction with His Son's sacrifice. It's called propitiation. Generically, we say that it means to placate an offended deity's wrath. In other words, if a deity, a God, exists and he has wrath, there's a way to soothe that wrath through something. In other words, just like we think about in normal judicial sense, you go murder someone, what soothes the wrath is that you get some kind of a sentence handed down. And then once you pay the price, you're clear. That's what that means. That's a judicial setting. You do something wrong, you, you face a penalty, you pay a penalty, and it's, it's over and done with. Okay? In other words, the court system has to be propitiated, has to be satisfied. Something has to get paid. Someone has to pay the price for this wrongdoing. So that's propitiation. Generically, we say that it means to placate an offended deity's wrath. Specifically, in Christianity, we say that God's wrath and righteousness are satisfied by the cross of Jesus Christ. Somebody had to pay. Well, Jesus paid for all of us, for all sins. Okay. This paves the way for believers' justification. So... Now, that may seem like a mouthful, but it's really very simple. And as a side note, just remember that often the reason that certain passages and even words become difficult is because the arguments uh, against them are complex. Remember what Paul was arguing there. Paul had to argue certain things. With that said, go to Romans 3.23. Romans 3.23. So people, in other words, just put this in the context in this morning's message, people don't like the idea that God has to be propitiated. Do you get what I'm getting at? In other words, they don't like the idea that God has something against mankind and that a a price has to be paid. Man doesn't like that. The flesh doesn't like it. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned. There's your sentence. There's your indictment. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How many of you have actually started your evangelistic endeavor this way? Seriously, do you start it off with, do you want to go to heaven? (laughs) Or do you want to start it off with Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? Which one gets a person in the right position to evangelize? Look, you've sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You kind of have a problem. Your problem isn't a destination. 
Your problem is that you have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, is the word, in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time. You ready for this? This is the, this is the phrase that literally blew my mind this past weekend, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Wait a minute. So he would be just and the justifier, both of those things, of the one who has faith in Jesus. This last verse jumps out almost as profoundly as the one on the board, Romans 1, 16-17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the very power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. That is, is I mean, that's the one that blew Martin Luther's socks off. Uh, every time I read it, my, my socks are basically in shreds. I'm serious. So maybe it's not that, but it's close. Again, Romans 3.26, For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So in other words, there's a certain justice in view, and it has to be satisfied. Someone has to justify someone against his own justice. But do you see it? Dwell on that last statement. He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. While you're doing so, consider that God is both. Just try to grab hold of this. It may take a little while. He's both just, which means his justice is never compromised, and he's the justifier of believers. In other words, he's the one who satisfies his own justice. This is a um, paradox, I guess, to people who are offended by the gospel. They don't like that setup, so they're offended by it. They will say, how can a wrathful God who demands payment for sin pay for the sin himself? Does a judge pay for it himself? Does a judge say, don't worry about it, Jimmy. You shot a guy dead in the street. I'll pay for it. It doesn't make any sense. Who do we always look to? We look to the perpetrator, right? You are going to pay the price. But we have the, the justice of God and the justifier all wrapped into one God. I mean, what the? This is offensive to the human flesh. What does the human flesh say? When someone wrongs you, what is the first thing you want to do besides maybe punch him in the throat? Right? If someone wrongs you, what's your flesh say? Make it right. Go get him. Revenge. Right? And even if you're not even that, you know, sick like I am, you still, your flesh still says, you will pay, mister. And you want them to pay. It's like, you know, doom on you. Doom on you. What's that from? Ice Age. Anybody? No. Doom on you, right? It's, you will pay. That makes sense. 
Read the book of Job. That's what his friends thought. So this is what the human flesh says. It says, no way, there's no way that he can be both. So this paradox is for people that are offended by the gospel. They will say, you know, how can a wrathful God who demands payment for sin pay for the sin himself? Shouldn't it fall on the perpetrator, in other words? Now, when you figure that out, that question, when you have that answer etched in your soul, you finally understand what the grace of God is. Not prior. When you can answer that question in your own soul, how can a wrathful God who demands payment for sin pay for the sin himself? When you understand that, then you finally understand the grace of God. Any perversion to it and you're missing it. As the Spirit's taught us recently, the grace of God is not what most Christian churches seem to pray, portray it uh, as. Most Christian churches, certainly the largest denomination in our area, does not portray the grace of God accurately. Most so-called grace doctrines out there are an assault on the doctrine of propitiation. They're an assault on it, suggesting that God is satisfied with simply loving people minus his justice and wrath. They don't want to talk about propitiation because propitiation implies wrath. That a wrathful God has to be satisfied and that there was a price to pay because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But nobody wants to have that conversation. They all want to start with, do you want to go to heaven? So most grace doctrines out there are abominations. They're assault on the doctrine of propitiation. Suggesting that God is satisfied with simply loving people. Minus his justice and wrath. In fact, his wrath seems hardly taught anymore. Why not? Because if you, teach, if you teach the way Jesus taught, you'd have nobody in your seats. I mean, I do. But I'm assuming it's because you guys want the truth. That's my basic assumption, that you're all saved. And that's why you're, you gravitate towards a ministry like this, because you just want the whole truth on the subject. But the problem is that most people don't teach wrath anymore. They're afraid of it. Some of them are gun-shy because of previous run-ins with religion. I get it, especially the one around here that likes to scare people. Again, let me put that into principle format for posterity's sake. Up here on the board, the gospel, quote, paradox. Some will say, how can a wrathful God who demands payment for sin pay for the sin himself? When you figure that out, you now understand what the grace of God is. Romans 3, 23 to 26. You might say, well, I'm still a little confused here. How do I figure this out? Simple. Just look at the previous verses again. We're reading deliberately. Go to verse 23. Romans 3, 23. Just read this again. You have the answer right in front of you. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay, there's the problem statement, as we would say being justified as a gift by His grace 
through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. There's your answer. That's why there's no other solution to salvation other than Jesus Christ. There's no alternative ways to heaven. There's not just this one God that, you know, is at the pinnacle of all these other bogus religions. There's only one way, like Jesus said, and that's through him. That's where redemption is. I mean, he paid the price. You don't see that in other religions. The one that's around here, you pay part of the price. You have to do good works. Or else your own salvation is in jeopardy. That entire theology is wrapped up into a religion and people are all screwed up over it. When God's like, no, 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 no. It's my justice we're talking about. And oh, by the way, I'm the justifier. I sent my son. My son bought you with a price. He paid the price. That was the only price that was satisfactory because he was blameless and upright. He was the spotless lamb. He paid the sacrifice that you couldn't. Amen? That's exactly the... Believe it or not, as simple as it sounds, the flesh is offended by it. Because man's sensibility is offended by it. But I need to do something. You see, I'm a self-made man. I'm a self-made woman. This is how I've been doing it. Sounds like the rich, young ruler, doesn't it? What do I need to do to gain eternal life, because this is the pattern that I follow in my whole life, and I've been successful so far, so don't try to upset it. Jesus is like, drop all of that. Drop that whole thing. Get rid of that attitude, because that attitude will never, I'll never, my Father will never save you. I can't save you in that condition, if that's your attitude. And some of you have loved ones that have that very attitude. Yes, I'll go to church with you, I guess. They don't want Christ. They don't even like the idea of propitiation. They hate the idea. The flesh hates the idea of propitiation. All have sinned, and none are able. So there's your answer, right in Scripture. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Bingo, there's your answer. Remember the question on the board. Some will say, how can a wrathful God who demands payment for sin for the sin, pay for the sin himself? Again, when you figure that out, you now understand what the grace of God is. And I hope you see it. If, if not, let me help you a little bit more on this gospel quote paradox. God solved the sin problem for us. He decided to become a man, Philippians 2, 7, 8 so that our justification may come as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Romans 3.24 Flesh doesn't like that either. Hold your, thumb, go to, hold your thumb, go to Philippians 2.7, just so you can see it through the eye gate. Philippians 2.7 This is the problem. This is one of the major reasons that the people you've tried to evangelize in the past, well, listen. It's paradoxical to them that the same one whose justice needs to be satisfied becomes a man and then justifies us through that, through him. It's offensive to the flesh because the flesh has nothing really to do other than believe. <laughs> uh. 
Philippians 2.7, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's how he solved the problem. Again, to answer the original question, how can a wrathful God who demands payment for sin pay for the sin himself up here on the board? Because God solved the sin problem for us. He decided to become a man so that our justification may come as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. That whole conversation people don't want to have. They want a God. They just don't want Jesus. They want a God. They don't like this idea of not having some say in it. Not having some part in it. What must I do? I'm telling you right now, I would never do this unless I went cuckoo and crazy and this would never happen, I hope. I could start a church next door and blow the doors out of it. All I'd have to do is teach religion. That's all I'd have to teach. I'd say it was Christian, I'd put a big cross up top and I just would start teaching, hey, listen, if you don't do this thing, if you don't, let's hey, everybody's favorite, if you don't tithe which I don't teach here for obvious reasons. If you don't tithe, you're going to hell. You can't be saved because that's the only, I mean, come on, you've got to tithe. If you don't do this, this, and this, and I put out a finite number of little obstacles that, you know, even the human flesh can jump over, if you don't do these things, you're doomed. The place would be flooded. Why? Because I just opened up the door to the flesh. That's why. That's why. You see, this whole thing of God being propitiated is a paradox to the human flesh. Only a humble person arrives at the point and agrees to it. The arrogant flesh hates this stuff. Hates it. Back to where we started this little theological sidebar. Go to Romans 3.25. Romans 3.25. And if you look deep, under the covers of every religion in human history, somewhere along the lines, it has this in it. It doesn't like grace. It'll use the word grace because Satan's really good at hijacking language. It'll say, oh, this is grace. Here's grace. You're ready for this? This is my favorite. This is grace that God so loved the whole world that he's just going to gather everybody up. Even little Johnny, who's an arrogant little fleshly whatever, Right? Especially my son or my daughter. Oh, I like this doctrine because now I don't have to lose sleep at night over my kids. Well, go ahead and believe the lie. But that's not what Jesus taught. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that God is just and righteous and sentencing everyone to hell. Thank God for his son. Romans 3.25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That is mind-blowing. That last phrase is mind-blowing. He's just and the justifier. The fact that that's offensive is paradoxical. Now that 
once you're saved, I believe, and you look back on it, you can look back on it understandingly. But the reality of it is like, oh my, why wouldn't anybody want this? I mean, come on, what are we doing here? And stop perverting it and trying to slip people in through the side saying, oh, God's just so loving that, you know, forget about his justice. No. Read the Bible. You see an awful lot of God's wrath in the Bible. Amen? I mean, he doesn't play games. He says, my wrath is serious. You are separate from the holy God of the universe. You were born that way. You were born a sinner. And you need a Savior. And you got to accept him as Lord, too. These are the things. I don't like that at all. Nope. That's the problem. No one has that conversation anymore. Very few people do. I hope you're having now trained up in the gospel proper. I hope those are the conversations you are having. You are revisiting with loved ones. I hope you start off with Romans 3.23. I really do. I don't want you to start off with, do you want to go to heaven? I want you to start off with Romans 3.23. All of sin falls short of the glory of God. What say you? And then you get to the grace of God. It's mind-blowing. I believe that if each of you spend the time thinking about Romans 3, now, I, I suggest you read the whole chapter, if not the whole book, but at least the whole chapter, you'll be completely enamored with God's grace. Completely enamored, in love with God's grace. It's, it's i got to stop talking because I won't make it through the lesson. Whew. So I want that for you. And I hope you want that for other people in your life. That's all. With that said, uh, we have to change gears now. Wow. You know what? I'm going to end. I know it was titled, you know... What is the title? Why are the apostles so... I'm, all, I'm crying up here, that's why. It's messing me up. Why are the apostles so encouraging? I know. Have a little grace. Right? God took pause this morning. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the privilege of studying your word here this morning. Thank you for always being so open and honest and righteous with us just while loving and merciful thank you for a balanced diet of holy scripture father thank you for authoring it through your spirit and thank you once again for the very privilege of living this life that you've given us and thank you for your grace and Thank you for putting loved ones in our paths and not taking them out right away, but rather being so very patient in ways that we can't even fathom so that we might enjoy all of eternity with those we love. We just ask for traveling mercies as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father. 
We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.